Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every week to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. Glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Hi, you two. I'm so happy to see Yo. you. <laughs> we were talking before we got on is what's a kosher greeting for uh, two friends in a, in a public setting. And I, I went with you too. Hi, you two. Yeah. We're going for objective mathematical reality. <laughs> that's what we're Yeah, I mean that's what it's come to. That's that's true. Yes. Well, uh, what okay, well, you two then. What do you got to say for yourselves this um beautiful <sighs> Thursday? You know, it's a lot. Pioneer Day is tomorrow in fourth grade. <laughs> mm-hmm. And Ooh, that's that's top of my mind too. I'm glad you brought um, that up. It's just it's been a whole thing this morning to try to think about like can I send in a glass bottle of root beer? You know, like, um, what does he wear? Uh, yeah, it's, you know, that's actually what's on the mm. front of my brain right now is Pioneer Day for the fourth grade. Well, what did he go with in terms of, did you have any like sort of like chaps or something? Like what do you wear? We have, we have none of those things. Um, right. yeah, there's always like the broad assumption made in Texas that everyone has cowboy boots. Uh, that's mm-hmm. not true anymore. So I totally thought that when I moved to Houston, I was like, everyone was gonna have cowboy boots, a Southern yeah. accent, wear a 10 gallon yeah. hat, and maybe yeah. like half the people will ride their horses to work. Right. I think I and actually thought that. And then I got not. there and I was like, I am the most provincial person who has ever lived. Well, every, every time I've been to Texas, the only thing I do notice is that the cars are discernibly larger. Like you, oh, you, you oh, yeah. pull up next to Lots some cars pickups. that you're like, how yes. big? I had no idea yeah. they made a pickup this size. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. Conversely, yeah. when I took a bunch of kids uh, from Texas on a youth trip to, to San Francisco, they were like, everyone here drives a hybrid. There's no pickups. And you can't get bacon on your burger at In-N-Out, which they found to be deeply distressing. So, <laughs> yes. Cultural difference. We're, we're learning right. it. We're, we're becoming yes. more and more aware, attuned, sensitive. Yes. Um, well, we? <laughs> any news to report uh, on your end there, Heyman? Uh, well, I'm a priest in the Episcopal Church, so I'm, you know, Holy Week is next week, so I'm kind of freaking out about that a little bit. Uh, you know, we're doing Palm Sunday, we got the Passion Reading, we're live streaming, we're under a tent, so it's going to be a Holy Week, uh, like, like none other. Um, so, so yeah, that, that's definitely top of mind right now. I'm a little, I'll confess to a little bit of anxiety. Um, one of our, our, our blessed, uh, retired priests called me yesterday. He's, he's older to let me know he'd be there on Palm Sunday, which I'm excited about because I love him. But he did say, he's like, you know, RJ, Palm Sunday, kind of a big deal. I was like, really? Oh, okay. Thanks for reminding me. I appreciate, I appreciate the encouragement. It's on the so, big stage yeah. now. Oh, that's I, uh, right. That don't blow it, baby. There's so, so many times in my life when people are like, when are you going to run a church? Like, when are you going to be rector? No, hold out as long like, as you possibly can. Like, it's time for you. And I'm don't like, do it. look, don't I've do seen it. this up close. So, <laughs> yes, uh, right. That's right. <laughs> I don't know. 
Sarah, how, how are Holy Week uh, preparations going in your sphere at Holy Spirit you know, or Rice? Uh, well, Holy Spirit, it's, I mean, it's everything RJ just said. So, like, yeah. I'm not doing any Control of it. Control chaos. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I watched my husband, like, every morning he, like, is leaving as early as possible to try to get stuff together and then coming home yeah. very late at night. That's yeah. what I know is happening for Holy Week. Um yeah, and it's just, it, you know, it'll be a sweet week with my students. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think we'll probably, you know, we're, I'm hoping we can do something really fun for Easter, like a maybe a dinner together outside. And then this is amazing news because pretty much all of them have been vaccinated. I think we're actually going to be able to do a retreat together before the semester's out, like go away somewhere, oh, which is wow. so nice. awesome because these kids have just, well, RJ, you know, you've got a son in college. It's just been Rough. a hellacious year. Yeah, yeah. So, and I think about my kids who are seniors this year and what that's been, you know, it's just yeah. brutal. So, um, that's that actually on a serious note is like such a bright spot in my ministry right now. Good. That's, that's yeah. so cool. I mean, there there Praise are rumblings. God. There are rumblings of the fact that our bishop may allow rumors us to, of grace <laughs> to meet at some point in the future in, indoors. <laughs> but uh, I, uh, I I'm jealous, RJ. I wish I was in uh, West Palm Beach and I could come to your church. We're doing some outdoor stuff here, which uh, I'm. It's gonna be awesome. Excited and about. Le- Lent in the tent, has got to say, has been amazing. The, the turnout's been incredible. People oh, have the dogs, the their coffees. Lent in the tent. I Someone love said it. Richard Ranger. Is that his name? I think he's a big time mock. He's like, you need to trademark that. I was like, do you know anybody? You know a lawyer that can help? <laughs> Lent but, in a tent. Uh, yeah. But the, the, the butterflies have been buzzing. We've seen so many new people. And it's really, it's been great. It's been really fun. So I mean, you could sort of be thankful for. You could sell like an enormous tent with some prayer books and like maybe. Maybe uh, I don't know what what would what would some more Episcopal things be? I don't know. People yeah, don't, have don't sold go into marketing. Dumber Dave. Stay in your lane. Stay so. in your lane. Some, some, some like bad coffee, and you could call it Lent in a tent. Hundred percent. And just mark it up. You know. See, this is Ashes. why. This is why yeah. I, I I run the Fish. organization. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, well, I'm uh, the big thing that I'm sort of reeling from right now is I don't I don't I guess we do make television recommendations sometimes, but I've just finished this. Uh, the, the the new season, the basketball season of Last Chance You on Netflix. We started it last night, Dave. I got I, three episodes in. I went to bed too late. It is. Uh, <laughs> it's unbelievable. It's, it's so like, good. I told someone it's like a real life Friday Night Lights, but like more Christian and yeah. com- and only and basically all black. And it's yeah. just like a, the premise of the show is that it's a lot of junior college athletes and they're guys that are incredible East Los athletes, Angeles Community East Los college. Angeles, incredible athletes, but they've essentially, they've either gotten in trouble with the law or they failed out of everywhere. And this is their last chance. And the coach is very cognizant of the fact that their window is closing. And this is mm-hmm. basketball for all of these guys is their sort of way out or way to a better life. And you, you, you watch, you listen to their stories and everyone's been through hell and all the coaches it's been their way out of like really bad uh, environments but the grace i mean there's a one point where the coach says he says these i realize that these guys need love the most when they deserve it the least mm. yes and um some folks see a thug coming in with a hoodie and you know earphones on and a scowl on his face and you know i, I 
that's I, what I you think, don't know is that his mom died of cancer and his 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 father's in jail. You know, like. But he also yeah. says, "I see that I want to see them how God sees them because that's how mm. as there there's yes. a there's a gem in there." And you just watch this sort of real life, actual. You know, uh, the heroes of of the world are making fifteen thousand dollars at community colleges, and yeah. um, yes. loving some guys that are giving them a really hard time, and for no other reason than this guy feel he he says I just feel called by God to do this. Yeah, I don't I just, know. The thing else. that struck me about it, and we all know I'm not sportsy. The thing that struck me about it is that he literally like trains them to leave. Like it reminded me in some ways of parenting, like that we, we do this thing with all our hearts, right? We love them in such intentional ways, God willing to leave. And like, that's like, that's what he's essentially doing. Like he's not going to have these guys forever on his basketball team, you know? So it's just, it's such a, um, it's just all gifts of grace. It's a fabulous show. Well, he's honest about wanting to win. He's very competitive. He wants to win. Yeah. But, but maybe even more than that, he wants, yeah, he wants them to go and get a scholarship at a division one school and have an actual, have an actual future, you know? And And those two things are so related, you know? They are. Like, so it's just, it's, it's so good. I'm going to write about it this week because one of the things he's very much sees himself as sort of a father figure in, and, but a disciplinary too. He yells at them constantly, but without using curse words and uses all these funny, like, uh, made-up words that they make fun of him for because the other guys, they're just anything comes out of their mouth they, they yeah. want to say. Firecracker! <laughs> firecracker! You mugs are going to do this? <laughs> yeah. And um, he just, he, he basically realizes that um, what he's conveying to these young men, although it sounds like the law and it sounds like you must win and all this stuff, what it conveys to them is that he cares and that he's committed to them. And yeah. for mm-hmm. these guys who've never really had it, like one of the guys says early on, who's a real, who gives him so much grief. The guy says, I know that there are two people praying for me in my life. And my gra- it's my grandmother and coach Mosley. And that's mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And uh, that's what they know. And, you know, to be honest with you, I was so impressed by it. I reached out to the guy on Instagram and he is agreed to do a live uh, interview uh, at our Tyler event uh, over Zoom. So I'm that's I'm, I'm so pumped. great, Dave. Um, he, he, and you know what? I asked him. I said, you know, I was so encouraged by this as a person trying to do ministry and watching Grace in action. And 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 he's his his only his response was like, David, I'd love to do it. To God be the glory. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that's amazing. I'm so what a blessing that will be for us. I can't wait. Um, but let's uh, let's move from there into we got a couple a uh, bunch of things to talk about today. The first is Sherry Turkle. Sherry Turkle is an MIT professor who writes about uh, on screen sort of screen technology and robotics. But she wrote a book called Alone Together that we quoted on the Mockingbird website quite a bit. And she's written a, a book about reclaiming conversation. She's she's a well known uh, academic. And uh, Corinne uh, Pertil in the New Yorker decided to profile her and ask her how and figure out how her pandemic year was going, a year where we're all been so uh, confined to virtual communication. And so I'll read you a little bit of it. In Alone Together, uh, Turkle um, observed that insecure in our relationships and anxious about intimacy, we look to technology for ways to be in relationships and protect ourselves from them at the same time. When relationships are maintained through these technological channels, we share not ourselves, but the story we want people to see. You don't have to be an attention-hungry media influencer for this to be true. You just have to be someone who prefers to control how people see you. 
who fears the exposure of your flaws or frailties. You have more efficiency because you have less vulnerability, Turkle writes, of screen-based interaction. The more we present our streamlined selves, the less likely we are to experience the reassurance of true intimacy, of knowing that our flaws have been seen and accepted anyway. She continued, talking to the New Yorker uh, profiler, we are much less likely in this Zoom encounter that they are having at the moment, trust me, to have a quarrel. I know this from research, because the little things that happen that would cause a quarrel don't. The little rough around the edges things, you're doing little things that will annoy me, my doing little things that will annoy you, are not going to happen here. You'll leave and I'll leave before we even get started on those. Then the uh, Corinne uh, Pertil writes, during our Zoom calls, I closed every other program on my laptop and placed my phone in a different room so that she wouldn't notice my eyes flick even momentarily to a notification. Talking to someone whose life work is conversation can be stressful. This year has offered a stark and painful lesson about social deprivation. After a year away from people who don't live in my house, I'm finding it harder to respond to the increasingly rare texts from loved ones asking how I am, and I notice that the texts I send asking that question often go unanswered. Too much is built up to compress into a text. What I want more than anything is simply to be in the presence of the people I love and miss the most, to see how they hold themselves now and what their faces look like when they tell me, with words or tears or silence, what this last year has been like for them. I want them to do the same for me. I want more than it can be communicated through a device. And yet Turkle admits to herself that she's, uh, you know, really loved watching like Patrick Stewart read Shakespeare on Zoom and, and Yo-Yo Ma do cello recitals. Uh, she says the pandemic had uh, pushed us to make our mediated communications a little less efficient and a little more human. It reminded us all, she said, that when we have the time and the imagination and the need, we can make something of this thing. The three of us are clearly, we're talking through a Zoom-like uh, technology now and lots of our lives and social lives and ministries. And, you know, I, Sarah, I can't help but think of you that the, the absolute blessing it was to have a service uh, for your parents that was in person, a funeral yeah. service. And yet I, I have attended some virtual funerals and they are very, um, again, they're better than nothing and they can be very powerful in certain ways, but you miss so much. Um, and I guess it's almost cliche to complain about it, but I love how Turkle explains that we're not going to get into a fight on a Zoom, but the, for the same reasons that we won't also feel like we've really been with each other hmm. or feel loved. Mm. What stuck out to you? I mean, I don't know. I was thinking um, my dad has this uh, old friend. Uh, had this old friend. Uh, his name is Dudley Dabs. That's his real name. <laughs> so growing up my whole life, it was like, Dudley's on the phone. And um, he insisted that he had to have a conversation with me yesterday morning. Um, and he's in North Carolina. So we were like this, uh, talking over the computer screen. And he told me this wonderful story about my father. Um and you can totally cut this, but it was this funny story about Dudley's father had a guy that worked for him in, I think, rural Mississippi or somewhere on the coast. And the guy had never seen the ocean, and they were close to the ocean, and Dudley's father took him down there, and he said, we're going to see the ocean. And the guy was very quiet as they stood in front of the ocean, and Dudley's dad looked at him and said, what do you think? And he said, it's not as big as I thought it would be. 
What? What? <laughs> <laughs> and when my dad came to visit us in New York the first time, we walked into Grand Central Station, and out of nowhere, seemingly, my father looked up and said, it's not as big as I thought it would be. And I thought, what an asshole. <laughs> and he called his friend Dudley and said... Hey, I, I, I use that on Sarah and Dudley was like mortified. And he's like, I'm going to call her. I'm going to tell her it's an old joke and an old story. My dad said, no, don't do that. She'll be mad at both of us then. And he said, someday I'll tell her. Well, he of course didn't. And so it was like imperative on Dudley's heart. And it was such a beautiful gift to me. I mean, both because I will never hear my father's stories again. And he had such beautiful ones. Um, and because Dudley has aged and he sort of resembled my father. And for me, it's hard for me, I think, in the season I'm in where technology has been such a blessing. It's hard for me to think of it. It's also been really imperfect, right? Because there's no way for me to be perfect right now. Like, I can't actually, like curate <laughs> I can't curate like a production around my parents deaths mm. I just like I'm good but I'm not that good and so it's all been really messy in terms of technological communications and I've been so thankful for it so I don't know that that responds well to what she said but I I I just that's that's a thing that like that was such a huge unexpected blessing you know mm. Made me think of a few things. I mean, one is, and I know this is going to be a, a common story for a lot of people around the country, but a, a member of our church uh, passed away of COVID about 10 days ago. And it was a bit of a roller coaster because he, he got it and it was really bad and then it was better and then it was worse and then he died. But the tough thing was that his wife, his amazing wife of um, more than 50 years, uh, you know, didn't see him for like the last month of his life. Because oh. even when, you know, he, he was continually testing positive for COVID. So he was in the hospital, then he improved, then he went to a nursing home, then he went back to the hospital. And the best she could do was kind of, um, kind of a FaceTime where she talked to him and the nurse... The nurse assured her that hearing was the last thing to go and that yeah. her, her husband heard her as he sort of slipped from this life um, to the next. But just how unbelievably awful that is. And it, it calls to mind, you know, Nathan Hart speaking to us about a year ago and saying, Here, here's what's happening in New York City, even though it's not happening in in um, Virginia or Texas quite yet. So I thought about that and just the the horror of what this last year has been for so many people. Um, and then personally, I just found it convicting thinking about kind of the hierarchy of intimacy when it comes to interpersonal relationships. You know, there's the face-to-face -face interaction where you're actually, where you're with someone, and not the, the cursory, but that where you're in their home and you're sitting down and you're spending time and you're getting to know somebody. And then there's, you know, there's Zoom, which is like slightly worse. Then there's the phone call, which is slightly worse. And there's email, which is slightly worse. And there's text, which is the worst. And which is the one I prefer, probably? Yeah. And she says, text, you know, because um, my life is too much about efficiency and getting things done and, and, uh, and not about relationship. And, and, um, and if I'm to be really honest, some of that is also fear, um, fear of really being known. And, and some is maybe a little bit of wisdom. You know, one of the challenges, I think, of pastoral ministry is, is um, I don't know, sharing enough of yourself 
to be a human being who's a, a, a beggar telling other beggars where he found bread, but not such a human being that your parishioners are like, whoa, this guy's a nut job. Mm. <laughs> you know, like showing them enough of the crazy, but not too much of the crazy and kind of maintaining what someone once called the, the personal professional boundary, which sounds not very healthy. Um, but I, I, it, it's really challenging to navigate all of that. You know, and also keeping in mind what Paul says, you know, we, we, we do not preach ourselves, we preach Christ crucified, you know, for your sake and for us and keeping the focus on Jesus and not making about making it about me and taking things so personally. But um, it, it is a real, it is a real challenge, um, finding true intimacy, um, especially in this time, but, but also in our hyper-efficiency-focused world and being a hyper-efficiency-focused person. And as she was just wrote about her relationships to her uh, doctoral mentees and, and other people and, and taking walks on the beach and noticing things in people's homes and, and really being present in the moment uh, as she was interacting with other people, I found that convicting because I, I struggle I struggle to do that. Mm, yeah. I struggle to be really present. Um, and that's not, it's not a good thing. Yeah. You know, I, I do, I, I kind of, I do kind of romanticize, like what was pastoral ministry like before telephones and email and where like, if you wanted to see somebody, you had to go knock on their door, <laughs> you know, I mean, actually definitely see them. better. A lot of travel time. Right. I think, <laughs> I think it was. Although, I think it was you know, better. Yeah, but I, I also think, well, yeah, it probably was. People and the, took like you said, naps, RJ. That's all I ever hear about when I hear these old naps. clergy talk. Yeah, they're always like, oh, well, it took God. a nap every day at 2 p.m. You know, I'm like, what? Dave, your dad used to take a nap in his office at seminary every so often. I, I think know. he would tell That's... his secretary, hold my calls for half an hour. I'll be yeah, napping. That's, he's mean, been doing that my I, whole life. It, it, it's easier when you wake up at like 5 o'clock every morning. But they, um, yeah. this trade-off that she mentions a number of times that you just hit on the trade-off between efficiency and intimacy i've never heard it put quite that way and that um you know we can either have efficiency or we can have intimacy but you can't quite have both both. you cannot and and everything tells you you can right that's like that's like a solid 32 percent of instagram is Mm. like for mothers is like you can be super efficient and you can have intimacy with your children and you can have intimacy with your husband and it makes me think of like the early days of the pandemic because like i was totally in a pattern of when i would read to um the kids at night i was like you know, you're, it's like, you're like trying to get them to like round second base and T-ball. You're like, hustle, hustle. Okay. Okay. You know what I mean? Like, you're just like, who says you're not sporty, Sarah? Right? I'm super sporty, but, um, get the windmill but, arm going. Yep. But then when the, yeah, when the pandemic happened, I was like, like, I remember trying to like hustle our daughter along to bed and I was like, why? You know what I mean? Like, what am I going to go do? (laughs) And there was like a moment of like real connection and sweetness in that. And like me not being like an anxious presence in that, that I was like, oh, like this, this is more pleasant. You know what I mean? Like this is more enjoyable for both of us. Um, Mm. So. Well, I was going to say about this this show that I just watched, and this guy, Coach John Mosley, and he he's in these players' lives because they spend so much time together in person. Yeah. And spoiler alert: at the end of it, you sort of see uh, what's happening. Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> it's not not a real spoiler. <laughs> okay, you see what's okay. happening during COVID. 
and you watch oh, as he's you know it fast forwards of a, a, a few months. I wondered about that. And like you realize you, you watch him try to get on Zoom and it's not quite working and you just realize oh my gosh this guy's ministry is is they'll figure out something but yeah. it doesn't it's not going to work quite as well if he can't have these It's an actual ministry of presence. Yes. As it, opposed to if people talk about the ministry of presence it actually is that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I I, yeah. Th- I, th- I thought there was something sad about it. But then again what Sherry Turkle says is in the ways that we have pushed these technologies to be a little less efficient, a little more humane. You know when you hear about people, you know, having like happy hours on on Zoom, at first it it, it sounded so ridiculous because it seems like it contradicts the very nature of the medium, which is to communicate mm. information quickly, and to just sit there and hang out, I, I, I you have to get over some dissonance on that. But it sounds it's it, but people doing live Instagram, you know, I think sometimes I I remember watching a, a performance by a friend of mine, and I felt like, gosh, I feel like I'm in his living room. This is pretty cool, Aww. and this wouldn't have happened if without this. And so maybe it has been a good little, a little bit of a slight pushing of the needle towards something. Cause I think about this efficiency thing. And, um, I've been reading this book about by a, a French Christian anarchist thinker, Jacques Ellul, who calls our society a technological, uh, uh, name dropper. <laughs> he talks about <laughs> technology uh, that, that we're obsessed with techniques, getting things more and more efficient and for no other reason than they need to be more efficient and things will all go more efficiently. And the trade-off is less human connection. And yes. that, that's, it's, it's a lot of means without an end and the means will constantly be getting faster and better. And the, somehow the pandemic feels like maybe, Maybe we could say that there's been a slight, you know, uh, spanner thrown in the works. But RJ, you were trying to say something. Well, two things. I mean, my my four-year-old FaceTimes our college freshmen, and they just hang out over FaceTime. You know, like they'll they just hang out. My older son's doing his homework. My youngest son is eating a bowl of cereal, and they'll just hang out, which is kind of hilarious. But no, Sarah, I totally related to what you said about. Uh, not getting as efficient with your kids. We just had spring break and it was just so great because we let Marshall stay up as long as we wanted to. So he would go to, he would fall asleep at about 10 o'clock at night mm-hmm. and then he would sleep till 8.30 in the morning, oh, which was so nice. unbelievable. And then school starts again. I'm like, why can't school start at nine? Yeah. If only, why does school have to start at 7.30 or eight? Because just getting that extra hour and a half of sleep was just bliss, you know, and made me like him more. <laughs> yeah. You know? and, and yeah. Yeah. I hear it's that. all it takes. Less conflict. <laughs> Well, let's move on to something that, that is, was another fascinating article, this time in Vice by Shayla Love, who is usually, I think she sort of writes about human behavior for them. And the title is, Why Your True Self is an Illusion. And she asks at the beginning, if you went into another body, which of your traits would, you most, would most likely come with you? Um, above other personality quirks, memories, and preferences, people consistently answer that question saying that they would retain traits uh, related to their morality. The, what? Yeah. The true self is what people believe is their essence. It's the core of what makes you you. If it was taken away, you would no longer be you anymore. Remarkably, not only do most people believe in a true self, they consistently say that their true self is the parts of them that are fundamentally morally good. Though this finding has been repeated many, many times, what we know from neuroscience and psychology doesn't provide evidence for a separate and persisting morally good true self buried within. Yet that makes the true self and the fact that so many of us have belief in this, uh, in this uh, all the more intriguing. 
Uh, she writes, uh, when people make positive changes in their life, they are more likely to be viewed as revealing what was always deep inside of them. When they make negative changes, they are moving away from their true selves. When su- oh, this is so good. <laughs> when subjects were asked what parts of the self were to blame for a person becoming, quote, bad, like being a deadbeat dad, as one study asked, participants said that those changes were attributable to the surface self. But if someone becomes a better person, a loving father, well, that was an expression of the true self. This conception of a morally good true self is stable in ways that other psychological constructs aren't. Studies with people from Colombia, Singapore, and Russia all had similar findings, even though those cultures have very different ideas about the self and the nature of the individual. Yet, our modern world can seem to offer a contradiction to the belief in the morally good true self. If we believe that about ourselves and others, why is there so much political strife, hate crimes, and nasty bickering online? Even when we strongly disagree with someone, it doesn't necessarily conflict with the belief in the true self, since the true self is not married to a person's actions. When you have close friends or family with a very different worldview, there's a knee-jerk reaction to feel like, well, that's not really them. They got sucked into this thing on Facebook, or they've been duped. But I know that below that is who they really are, which is how I see the world. (laughs) Meanwhile, the other person is having the same thoughts that you've been indoctrinated, and deep down, you hold the same values that they do. It seems to be such a widespread cognitive tendency that it would be difficult to dissuade people from it. Also, telling people they're not actually morally good won't entice a very captive audience. More pressure to be... As we well uh-oh. know. More pressure... I better, I better find a new line of work. Uh-oh. More pressure to, quote, be yourself or find yourself can add to the stress of, make, of being alive. I mean, just to be clear, everyone's true self is a hundred percent the same. Okay. A hundred percent the same. Um, and we're all like selfish assholes, sinners. Like that is your true self. I just like, when it all falls apart, it's the same. Like, Oh, you're so negative. What a Debbie downer Spanish horror movie, like monster inside is like what your true self is. Like just to be clear. What about, what about the Imago day, Sarah? What what what, yes, what do you say to yes. that? The image of God. You know, well, it's so it's so interesting to hear this because um, we uh, this past Sunday uh, when I was preaching to the students, we I talked a little bit about incarnational theology, and I you know I totally got this from uh, same old song from our uh, lectionary podcast with Aaron Zimmerman and Jacob Smith, and it's just so excellent, but. You know, they talk about, they talked about when we talk about incarnational theology, it's, it's, we so often want to think of it as us becoming like God, mm-hmm. but it's really that God became us. And, and when you think about who we are at our base level, at our truest selves, you know, I mean, I've said this a million times before, but it's like, when I was in seminary and people would talk about the Holocaust or civil rights movement and they're like, oh, man, when that happens, I'm going to be out there on the front lines. Like, I'm going to do, 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 do. And I'm like, girl, you going to hide in your house and you know it, you know, <laughs> like, I want to hear that. Um, you know, it is so remarkable. Remarkable is not even the word. It is insane that God looked at us and was like. I'm going to become one of them. You know what I mean? Like, it's insane. So it's like crazy. We, we, we get so used to Christmas and Easter. We don't think about, like, how insane it is. So anyway, I just, I, I mean, it's, it, it, it's so, 
I hate to say this, but it's so validating probably in real, which is just a, it even further proves my point that I am a selfish asshole sinner, but it's so validating that science matches up with low anthropology. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's so just like, yes, like this is who people are. And we want to think, you know, this other way about ourselves and people, when they hear this, they're always like, you know, I know you're kidding, RJ, but people are always like, oh my God, she's so negative and da, da, da. It's like, no, this is where you find your freedom. Mm. Like when you, when you don't constantly wake up every day. what it looks day, like to live in the light. Yes, 100%. It's the truth in the light to, to not wake up every day and think, how do I like project, you know, being a more moral person? How do I like, how does everyone know that I'm making these good choices? Like when you're just like, I'm probably I'm like, I'm for sure going to screw up today. And I'm I'm beloved, you know, in the midst of that, it it makes you it makes you see the world with the eyes of of love in a way that that you otherwise you're constantly frustrated with people and you're constantly disappointed in yourself. Totally. Totally. I mean, yeah, having a high view of yourself leads to d- denial and uh, judgment, self-righteousness, affairs. despair, yeah, all sorts of <laughs> hiding, all sorts of, you know, lack of intimacy, lack of honesty, yes. because intimacy happens when we, when we reveal our true selves. But, but, you know, coming to terms with the fact that you're not good allows you to have compassion on yourself, on other people, um, to tell the truth, to not hide, to find grace, mercy, forgiveness. Um, yeah, I, I think about this um, as the, uh, the difference between Brad Bird and Pete Docter, you know, both of whom I love. They both direct um, animated movies. Uh, Brad Bird directed, wrote and directed um, The Iron Giant, Ratatouille, and The Incredibles, all of which are stories about finding your true self and being and being true to your true self, uh, which are great movies, but ultimately ring kind of uh, false, you know, and not terribly hopeful. Whereas Pete Docter directed um, Inside Out and Up and Soul most recently, all of which are uh, not about discover that the life isn't about discovering who you really are. Life is actually about your feelings. And who you love, and who loves you, yes. and and actually living life for what it is, rather than hoping and wishing that it were something else, mm-hmm. and that you were someone else. And Pete Doctor's a Christian. My I said before, my wife used to babysit his kids in in Berkeley, and I would love to. Um, he actually just did an interview with Terry Gross that I haven't listened to yet, which I have to listen it's to. It's so good. I just is it good? Yeah. Is he a good? Spe- is he a good speaker? Because some of his yeah, artists made- are not. It made me want to watch Soul, which you know I've been hesitant about. So. It's, it's really good. Yeah, it's it's um and and so it's it's the dichotomy. Those are two very clear things. Like you said, it, it is is life about discovering your true inner good self and finding freedom there, or is it actually letting go of that and living life for what it is, living in in, in light of the reality of life, um, and sort of loving what's in front of you and and learning to love your life as it is rather than trying to make it to a place that you think you'll be able to love it or love yourself. Um, I I just, can I just say, I would never wish what has happened to me upon anybody, but my God, has it been clarifying for what matters? Yes. I mean, you really do start to look at your life. Like I'm 38, you know, and I start to look at it in terms of decades. My parents are in their sixties, you know, that's less than three decades from now, really for me. And like, 
I mean, maybe this will come as a surprise to some people, but like, you know how like there's a trajectory in like secular jobs and you want to like get to the top of the pyramid so you can like be real shiny and everybody can look up to you on the top of the pyramid and be like, wow, she's shiny. Well, that's true in the church too. And I mean, there's always this like bigger, better stuff, even in the church, um, because the church is run by people and people are selfish sinners. But anyway, um, mm-hmm. I, I, that's just gone for me mm. because I know now in a very clarified way, it's exactly what you're saying, RJ, the people in front of you. Like the people that have been given into your care, the people you feel compassion and love for. And maybe those are people in your house. Maybe those are, maybe God is calling you, you know, like this coach beyond, you know, beyond that. Maybe your, your vision of family gets expanded. Mine certainly has in the wake of, of loss, but it has been such a a terrible and beautiful gift to get out of this. Well, that's, that's, I, gosh, you know, the, um, there was a New Yorker cartoon this week that, kind of hurt um, was the young woman saying, I can't wait to forget everything I learned about myself during quarantine. And, <laughs> and, one, and one of the things that quarantine has taught uh, many of us is the, you know, the extent to which, uh, or at least I feel like it's revealed things to me about myself that I really had been trying to outrun or is, it's made you think about stuff from, you know, for me, it's usually stuff from the past or it's, or confronting realities of, you know, just the the town you live in or you know whatever it is that you kind of didn't want to you you were using the treadmill to avoid and even for those who haven't lost someone we've all sort of i mean i think sarah you said like way back when you said we're all sort of grieving in a way and uh part of that is to realize what really matters in life which is i think Love and connection. I thought it was interesting too how the uh, the article says in many places that the the belief in the true self has actually gives people justification for doing bad things because oh, totally. they'll be like, well, that's not who I really am underneath. If I did, if these circumstances were different and if I was growing in the right direction, I would, you know, you would know that I'm actually a really good person deep down. It's like, yeah, but you just. Uh, you know, that doesn't look like it, you know? Um, it, well, a cor- yeah, a corollary of that, you know the people in our culture with the highest self-esteem? Yeah. I've said this before. The people with the highest self-esteem? Sociopaths. Yeah. You know, because they just don't, they just don't care. It's kind of a, yeah, it's, it's related. That's, uh, you know, it's, that's so fascinating, yeah. When, but in, in a sense, what it also is saying is that there is a, there is, there is a push and pull within people. Um, there is a Romans 7 actual reality to folks where they, they, they kind of know that they, that they, that uh, they, the belief in the true self in a lot of ways sounds like they know they should be better but aren't yeah. really. And so you're, you're constantly trying to get there and avoiding the true self is the, this belief is one way of, of, again, as you guys said, it's avoiding who you really are. And it's, you know, I think about it again in terms of this last chance you, and I, I think of it as uh, to people who, to these young men who've been told nothing, that they're villains, like their whole lives and they've been shut down and there's all sorts of, uh, you know, really systemic things against them. Um, this man shows he doesn't come in with saying you guys are the best guys ever. In fact, he comes in sort of saying, "I care about you so much that I'm going to be here 
and I'm going to push you harder and I'm going to call like, and I'm just going to show you grace and see what happens. Yeah. And, um, that does create a sort of a, a, a new, but it's all outward focused. It's not, the guys aren't thinking about themselves. What happens is they think about their teammates and they start thinking about other people and it's the left hand, not knowing what the right is doing. And, yes. and all of a sudden there's some transformations have happened. Some people are, seem to actually have become a slightly different version of themselves and some would say a better version, and yet it hasn't come by appealing to their sort of inner goodness. It's really been by drawing them away from who they are and into community and into, through, of course, the actions of an outside gracious uh, person that they know loves them. And I just find it, the whole thing, I'm so inspired by it. Any any other final words? Yeah. Yeah, I just, I think, I love, I actually wrote what you down, what you said, like to to show you grace and to see what happens, I think is mm. maybe the closest we get to any sense of becoming more like Jesus in incarnational theology. Mm. Just yes. show people grace and to see what happens. Sarah, the only other thing, what you said reminded me of an article I saw this week actually on, on today.com, which I'm assuming is the website of the television show. But someone wrote a book recently where they interviewed a bunch of hospice nurses. Um, you know, mm-hmm. people spend a lot of time with dying people about what their biggest regrets in life. And the three regrets are... Um, well, L- this lost one, love, I can kind of take lost love. Well, no, I, I didn't, yeah. I didn't live the life of my dreams, mm-hmm. you know, which I kind of get, but I also feel like as a Christian, I, I don't know, but the two, which really got me were I, I didn't share my love. I didn't love others mm-hmm. enough. I didn't. And the last one, um, was I didn't forgive. So I basically, oh. I didn't, I didn't live, I didn't live enough. I didn't love enough. I didn't forgive enough, which, which kind of goes to what you're, what you're saying when you've had a sort of an experience of death. Um, maybe you, you, I don't know, you love more. You forgive more, and hopefully you're free to live more. And live the life of my dreams is a little bit American-y language, but I think what that means is, is just sort of do do what makes me happy, like do what I want to do, what do what gives me joy, rather than think you know intimacy, not efficiency. Let's put it that way: relationship, not a not accomplishment. So I thought that was interesting. Does that does that yeah. resonate with you at all, Sarah? Yeah, yeah, it does. <clears throat> and I would say, I mean, I do think we read that "live the life of my dreams" thing, and we 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 especially as Christians are like, "Eh." but you know, I honestly, like I, I'm sorry. This is like my constant example for everything right now, you guys, but like my mom never got to see England. She wanted to see England her whole life. That was Mm. all she ever wanted. Like Mm. there are these things, right. That like we, and, and she could have honestly, like they could have done that, you know, but they didn't. And like, so I, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, it, it's funny. We have this terrible joke, but like, my mom has hated their fireplace since Josh and I got married, which was 15 years ago. And she just had it redone, you know, like a month before she died. I mean, and it's like people here. And I used I, before this happened, I would hear that stuff and be like, Oh, rich people. You know what I mean? Like I wouldn't. And now I'm like, just reading your fire. Like, you know what I mean? Like if that is like going to bring you joy, like, by God, redo your fireplace. Mm-hmm. Go to Canterbury. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. live your life. So that's fascinating. Use paper plates. Use. Gosh. I don't give a damn. <laughs> they, I also think. I mean, I, I agree with you, Sarah. And at the same time, I do think we're going to get to heaven, and the fireplaces are going to be amazing. The paper plates will be never ending. They'll recycle themselves. I love it. You know, uh, the, the the castles will be. They'll I just turn think into all whales. The, all the, the things plates. that all the regrets we might have as we're slipping into the kingdom. Of, we're gonna wake up and be like, 
I I I will ne- I will never regret anything ever again because yeah. life has just been utterly transformed and you know uh, every dream will be I mean I certainly hope every dream will be fulfilled you know I like I, I wrote something about regret recently because um, you know it's just I, I, th- I think it's a really fascinating subject and it, it, it plays into this a little bit one of the reasons our culture hates regret and sort of says don't regret anything just you know you know own your mistakes Frank Sinatra can move on you have no regrets we affirm it all uh, but regret actually what it does is it ties you to your past self and says you're not actually that different than you used to be and what is funny about that is that if you can accept the fact that everyone has regrets and including you, um, and that, you know, uh, then what all of a sudden you have is understanding and compassion for other people. It not only ties you to yourself, Mm. it, it gives you a point of connection and weakness, but therefore love with others. And again, this is how low anthropology that we keep saying it feeds into an actual compassion and, and yeah. outward focus, and I, uh, the reality of regret is a, is is painful. It doesn't mean it feels good, but it also means that the fact that everyone regrets stuff means that there is we're not our true selves. And uh, how do we we can either see that as an opportunity to love other people who are not their true selves and maybe go a little lighter on them, or we can just um, you know despair that that who who could love us like this? One of the great lines in this show is that they. they talk about one of the, the 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 shooting guard on the team named Sean and the two of the coaches that are like they're like uh yeah he's he's an asshole but uh he's the most lovable asshole I've ever met <laughs> and yeah. I was like that's uh you know that's like I hope someone says that about me one day <laughs> oh, oh, we, we do time. Dave we do it does, yeah. we do oh, thank you we actually have just a text thread and that's what it's called, it's called we do yes. Dave is a lovable asshole <laughs> well you were, you were talking about <laughs> the secrets out RJ you talked about now uh, people regretting not forgiving other people and this leads into the next article that was in the Atlantic written by Graham Wood um, he's a he's an Asian writer who is sort of um, very interested in what happened at Teen Vogue, which I didn't know that they had a a young As lady. Am I. A young. I read all about this yesterday, so I came prepared unexpectedly. Okay, so there was a young a young African American woman who was going to be the editor, the new editor of Teen Vogue, and it was all set to happen. And she's like 29 or something, and some old tweets resurfaced where she was complaining about like uh, Asian uh, folks in her orbit, and there was you know there's some ugly things she said on Twitter, and uh, the response has been to you know she's lost the, the, that opportunity and she's been fired. And all this canceled. Yes, the, in in contemporary parlance, she's been actually canceled, not just like <laughs> reprimanded. She's lost her job, and this at twenty nine. At twenty nine. <laughs> now this, just to be clear, this man. Like, this will be Googleable for the rest of this woman's life. Yes, and the uh, you know we we're, we're dealing with the, the the moment right now is people are talking about um, racism towards Asians. And um, yes. and the the fallout of that, and it's it's a very hot. I mean, there's been so much violence; it's terrible. It's a very it's yes. a very, it's a hot topic, and so yeah. and this is what he says. Mm-hmm. Says I suppose a magazine aimed at teens and preteens would strain to acknowledge what every adult knows, which is that the entire point of being a teenager is to make and correct the most mortifying er- errors of your life. Then, at some vague point when the first digit of your age is no longer a one, you experience a cleansing bonfire of your sins and your adult permanent record begins. 
I don't know about that. If Teen Vogue does not exist to celebrate this period of still expungible error, then it may as well be calling for the abolition of the teenage years altogether. Its staff, as well as many of its advertisers, evidently think its readers deserve no bonfire, no sin jubilee, and should be hounded eternally for their dumbest and most bigoted utterances. The coup at Teen Vogue is the result of a debased form of identity building, one that mistakes an identity worth having for one founded on the pitiless prosecution of offenses by members of other races, regardless of whether they are large or small, intended or unintended, ongoing or long disavowed. Uh, Like everyone, Asian Americans should meet racism and violence with the contempt they deserve. But they should decline to model their outrage on the vindictive excesses that have become commonplace. The strongest argument for McCammon's ouster is that she has not been especially gracious in accepting the apologies of others. But let's grant her maximum charity. In a world in which McCammon, that's the young woman who's lost her job, in a world in which McCammon apologizes for old tweets is better than one in which she sees nothing wrong with them. Possibly worse than the latter, though, is one in which the highest aspiration of racial pride is to slam the doors of repentance permanently in the faces of your enemies. In many religious traditions, expiation of guilt is an earthly process. You can confess your sins to a priest or wander earth in sackcloth and ashes. For the sake of today's teen Vogue readers, I hope that by the time they are McCammon's age, the current culture has developed its own process of expiation. Most people were 17 once, and those who haven't gotten there yet will be 17 someday and 27 too. She wrote these when she was a teenager. Is that correct? Like what she wrote? It sounds like it, it sounds like that. I don't know. I don't have the facts in front of me. That that was what was. I mean, that was my understanding yesterday. Again, we could be wrong, and I'm certain we will get letters telling us that we were. Um, but that that I'm so glad that he's saying this because that was what I kept thinking was like, wow, what is this? What is this saying to? what does this mean for being a teenager? I mean, what does this mean for, you know, and, and, you know, I mean, as a parent of someone who is like transitioning towards adolescence headed towards being a teenager, it's terrifying. And it makes me like never want to let any of either of my children near a computer. But I also think, okay, well, they have the privilege of a parent, right? At a certain moment that is aware of this, that's saying you can't do this. And for those people who are coming along, I mean, I do think about um, this. <laughs> when I was a kid, you know, my parents were super techie. We had like eight computers in the house when I was a kid. And so I had like one of the first, do you guys remember, uh, was it AIM? Yeah. A-O- yeah. Oh, yeah. AIM. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me back. So I was in like sixth grade, right? And I had my first like chat, whatever thing. And my parents were like, yeah, have at it. You know, like no one was there to like monitor. Like it was just like, sounds, this sounds cool. This is what the future looks like. And so I was like, I got to pick a name. And I was doing like a ton of Shakespeare. And because I was a theater nerd kid. And so part of the name was Nymph. Okay. Is that, is that a fact? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I didn't know. And like immediately, like my account got banned, you know, like it was like all this, there's all, I mean, nothing even like remotely bad happened to me. Thank God. Because immediately like who the powers that be at, you know, AOL instant messenger or whatever, were like, this is not good. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think about like the, also the privilege, right. Of having parents 
that safeguard you through this stuff. Not every kid has that. I mean, mm. I don't know. I mean, that that's also an interesting conversation here to me is like, if you don't have a parent that sits you down, you know, and also like, okay, so let's talk about why she felt like she could say this stuff about uh, a whole different <laughs> ethnicity. Perhaps she was raised in a household where people spoke that way. Mm. So because of her upbringing and because of like the fact that she didn't, she had not been raised in a household that's like that taught her about racism. Suddenly, like she will forever like be unhirable. Mm. I, I mean, like seriously, like these are bigger questions than just like this person was racist in this moment. It's like, well, you want to talk about like, you know, family systems. I mean, like, I don't know. I just, I think it's, it's really, I mean, we can certainly do this thing where we're like cancel culture and all that stuff. But like, I, it's like, it makes me think about who, what, what household did she grow up in? What was this little girl like when she was eight years old? I mean, you know, one thing I think about a lot and, and honestly it relates to, um, to the, to last chance is like, and I had, there's something about this for me as a, as a campus minister that has been such a blessing is like. I'm more able to see people and think about what they were like when they were eight. Like, and I think whenever we see people that we just like have decided we already hate them and trust me, I mean, that's on my, that's on my list of hobbies on my CV. Um, it's like, but what, but these people were children once and I don't know, I'm rambling. Their true selves when they were eight years old, just, yeah, I mean, but I, actually, I, mean, I, I, I have an eight know. year old at home and uh, let me just say <laughs> moral goodness is only part of the equation. Yeah. All a small part. Mm. I, I have a little bit different take, honestly, like Kevin Hart is back. Martha Stewart is back. You know, Louis CK isn't back yet, but I bet he will be, you know, it does strike me. That oh, even no, these people. Every time I see him, I gag a little bit. But maybe. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle is so funny about. I mean, Louis, I do want to point out of all those people, you've named one woman. Well, and and she I had about that. a lot of money and a I whole empire. Yeah, I did think I mean, about that. Is this a double standard? Is yeah, there like it's a hundred percent a double standard? Yes, yes. it is hundred. I mean, can you think of other women who got canceled for 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 doing something illegal or immoral or or whatever, and now are are back? Can you think of any? Can you? Who sort of rehabilitate their public image beyond Martha Stewart? Uh, I'm thinking. The only person that comes to mind is um, Monica Lewinsky. But yeah. her But her comeback has still been so based Britney in... Britney Spears? Britney... Dude, are you not up on the news? No. She is not well. Free Britney Spears. No, she's not well, but she's... I'm saying Hashtag she's free back, Britney though. Spears. She's not... She's she's now... She's she's thought of generally positively as opposed to negatively. She went through a time where like, she's a bad mom. But she's, she didn't... She's but not she didn't, like, mentally I, fit. She... I just don't know that you get, like, racism Twitter canceled and you come back from that, especially as a woman. And also, this is a woman of color. Like, I don't know. I just think the standards are higher. I'm just saying I've been struck recently, and it may be, as Sarah, you're pointing out, that we're quicker to forgive men than we are women. Like, let's be straight up. But I, I am surprised. I, it just comes to mind. I was like, oh, wait. Oh, yeah. He went through this thing, or she went through this thing five, ten years ago, and now now they're back, and, and no one seem to have forgotten, or, yeah, or, but- which, which, is a, which I think is kind of a good thing in a way like people should be able to make mistakes and not have it completely ruin the rest of their lives but i would say the difference is this woman hasn't even really had started living time to create yeah. anything right like the yeah. re- part of the reason we welcome martha stewart back or kevin hart back is because 
they had created things that we loved already. Yeah. And she hasn't even had that time. And I think, you know, I do, I follow Monica Lewinsky on Twitter. She's fascinating. I think a mm. lot about, you know, one thing my parents said to me very recently was we should have handled that better in front of you than we did. Yes. Like we, we were very judgmental of her. We really liked the Clintons, you know, and, and that kind of stuff. And, and she was a young woman and she was in a vulnerable situation and, you know, she was really the victim in this. Yes. And, you know, I, I just, I think, when I think about this woman at Teen Vogue, it's like her life is it really her life is over before it started, you know, in such a similar way in a lot of ways. So um, not that she's the victim. Like, please don't send me that email. Like, I just, you know, no, um, she, my husband is nicer than I am. I don't know what I need to say here, but like, it's just well, like, it's interesting that know. they say that like she, people were less inclined to let it slide because she had been kind of vicious to people who had uh, transgressed yeah. these norms. And that's yeah. something to bear in mind as we go yeah. through life. And uh, that's like what happened in Gimlet with the reply all podcast. Did you guys hear about that? You know, they're uh, doing a whole series about what happened at uh, bon, bon Appetit magazine and kind of uh, oh, racism yeah, yeah, yeah. and bullying. And then it turned yes. out that the two people who were doing the show were kind of accused of the same thing. So yeah, yeah that's one of my favorite shows. I was bummed. That what did they say? Anyway. Uh, you know, Policing people's ideological purity is a parlor game in which everyone leaves the room. Everyone dies. Yeah. Um, everyone gets killed. So the, the, but the plea for grace, though, I mean, I, I, maybe she's in a maybe she will. Maybe. Who knows, Sarah? Maybe we can pray for her that some some sort of yes. opportunity opens up. And I, th yes. I thought it would close by I, was, I wrote a piece this week that has a, has some similar dynamics to it about the doctrine of grace versus the disposition of grace. And yes. it, I think it has um, all of this stuff we've been talking about. I was trying to deal. It was the, the occasion for it was uh, David French, the political columnist, had written about this Beth Moore, who Sarah has uh, written about. She has decided to leave the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, I didn't actually know she was part of the Southern Baptist Convention, but he said it didn't seem like there'd been a theological divergence. She'd had some change of mind so much as she'd been subjected to so much cruelty from people within her denomination mm. and just basically didn't want to associate herself with that, as well as sort of some historical sins that she felt had not been adequately addressed. Um, but it was mainly her opposition to the previous administration. But I took it as a. He basically said that uh, there's a there's a there's a distinction between um, among people who 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 actually have similar convictions. There's a there's a ch difference in disposition, meaning in, are, are they nicer? Are they mean about how they communicate these things? Because French himself has been accused of being too nice, because he's he's sort of a right leaning uh, person that a lot of left-leaning people read. Uh, this is I, the, something my brother had said to me that really struck me. He said, the way you hold a position is oftentimes just as important as the position you hold. Uh, that's what he has sort of learned from 20 years in public ministry. And his words reminded me of a hot July day 10 years ago, sitting in standstill traffic outside New York City and watching in amazement as a church van a few lanes over decided to redeem the time by getting out a megaphone and reciting scripture to the rest of us. Um, there were no sudden conversions or hallelujahs. People were annoyed. And since it was New York, they kind of made their feelings known. But the lesson I took from it was that you cannot communicate the gospel confrontationally. You cannot convey a message about grace in a non-gracious or overbearing way. Just like you cannot talk about justice in an unjust manner, the circuits simply don't match up. 
Uh, I think this is not dissimilar to what Marilyn Robinson said when she quipped that nothing true can be said about God from a posture of defense. But then French wisely says that, you know, um, lest we think this is a problem in the Southern Baptist Convention, you know, we're Episcopalians or sort of on the Pivot. far end, and there's a lot of cruelty in that, in our situation as too. He said, no single church faction or ideological side has a monopoly on cruelty. The spirit of the age declares that if you get the, quote, big things correct, then cruelty and self-righteousness in the pursuit of those goals are either minor flaws, like bad manners, or outright virtues. After all, didn't Jesus drive the money changers from the temple with a whip? It's as if kindness to your opponents is somehow seen as evidence of insufficient devotion to your righteous cause. Now, this is me writing. To those who would claim it is cowardly or convenient to err on the side of grace in public discourse, just try it. It is so much harder to pull off an irenic attitude for any period of time than it is to, to succumb to gut instinct, blame, and scorn, especially since the internet so clearly rewards and incentivizes that. It's oh, crazy. Um, while disposition may not be the whole loaf, it explains a lot more, as I get older at least, uh, than ideology on its own. I was talking to some college students recently, and they were complaining about a group of peers who had taken upon themselves to report anyone violating the university's protocols about gathering. As they described the, quote, narcs in question, I couldn't help... That was me in college. <laughs> I couldn't help but chuckle. When I was in college, conservatives were the ones perceived as being anti-fun. The group they described was composed almost exclusively of progressives. The motivating convictions were different, but the finger-wagging, power-happy disposition was the same. And that disposition, I think, has a way of attaching itself to authority, whatever uh, ideological underpinning. Steer clear, I urge them, as it seldom ends well. Uh, on the flip side, stick close to those who exude a gracious disposition, both in life and in church, even if their professed theology or politics seem lacking. When it comes to houses of worship, the beliefs a church espouses on their website are only one part of discerning whether to attend. Disposition is a separate and, in my opinion, a highly underrated factor. So all this is to say that my brother John is right, at least about this. The way you hold a position is very often as important as the position you hold, but it's especially important when that position begins with the acknowledgement that all of us have significant blind spots and that no one ever changes their mind by sheer accusation. Antagonism antagonizes. And yet, as French writes, human beings need forgiveness and kindness like we need oxygen. Of course, the position John had in mind also entails that no one will communicate it 100% correctly or kindly, and that the Spirit can use pretty much any means it desires. As long as we're placing our hope in the Christian's ability to be kind, rather than the Christ's sacrificial kindness toward those who deserve anything but, we're lost. There is a stark mismatch between our near-infinite ability to talk about kindness, or whatever moral value we cherish at the moment, and our ability to actually embody it. But the starting point for human charity, come to find out, isn't being sufficiently lectured about it, but the receipt of charity when you're least disposed to expect it, which is a long-winded way of saying I'm grateful that God's grace is more than a position and more than a posture. It's a person. It's so funny that like this is, I, so John said something to me several years ago when we were at Suwannee one summer together, your brother, that was so similar. I was, you know... Um, complaining about how everyone's a worse preacher than I am. <laughs> um, they are. Because I am absolutely, I'm an insufferable sinner, if I haven't made that clear already in this episode. And John said something so compassionate 
about bad preaching. He said, the tone is more important than the content. Do they mean well? Do they love their people? And I think about that all the time, Um, especially when I'm critiquing other people's preaching, especially it's a gracious word I give to myself when I feel like my sermons are not up to par. Um, You know, and, and certainly some, you know, I, with that in mind, I will say some, you know, some of the worst preaching actually is preaching where it does not feel like they love their mm, people. You yes. know what I mean? It does not feel like they mean well. It feels like they are um, doing exactly sort of what you're saying doesn't work, which is condemning them and accusing or them. Or trying to change and, you them. Know, telling trying them to to get, you're yeah. trying to change them. Yeah. And so um, it's funny. It's sort of the same thing, right? But said in a different context. Um, that was very helpful. Yeah, I mean, I think this is, like, the kind of thing that's, like, why Mockingbird is so important in my life because this is the stuff that we – this is, like, one of our regular things, right, that we talk about that we know. It's also a regular thing that we know we see over and over again in, you know, in psychological work. Um, You you know, you knew this in parenting. Like, you you can't get a kid to do something – or you certainly can't get them to do something and love you while they're doing it if you are if you have like a condemning spirit about them. So, um, I mean, I just but I have to be reminded of this over and over again because the default is always, you know, tell people to get their lives together, right? Tell them to uh, to sort of follow your moral code. Um, and and why is that easier? And I think that's you know this episode is is. speaking to itself it's easier because to do the other thing to offer them grace to do um what was it dave said earlier i wrote down uh to show people grace and to see what happens requires intimacy you know requires us to like really be and faith and yeah that maybe there's a god who can do something yeah right so Mm. coach mosley says that uh Rules without relationship equals rebellion. <laughs> Ooh, that's, so that's true. totally true. And what I think he means is rules without love equals just yeah. reactance. Yeah, he says he yeah. says it better. Well, Sarah, are you talking but, about the the what John said about uh, tone mattering more than content? That's really good, and it reminds me of something that I think Jacob Smith said when he was talking about preaching the gospel. And this was a while ago. That you always need to be careful um, that, you, that you're you preaching um, for something and not against something. You know, that if you, yes. if you constantly find yourself preaching yes. against something, you may, you may not connect with your people, you may be attacking a straw man, yeah. you know, but are you talking yeah. more about what you're for rather than what you're against? And clearly that there are moments for confrontation, like, you know, Paul doesn't pull punches in Galatians and parts of Corinthians, and there's sometimes when, that, when things need to be um, called out, although interestingly, you know, mostly he's calling out um, people's uh, sort of self-justification and self-righteousness. So there, 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 <laughs> there's time, there is times for that. But I think, you know, uh, by and large, the goal should be, can you talk about grace in a gracious way? You know, in a way that doesn't feel like you're trying to start a fight. <laughs> you're not trying to be against somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, that someone is free to disagree with you. You know, they can kind of take it mm-hmm. or leave it. You know, Jesus was not terribly uh, coercive. You know, let him who has ears to hear, hear. Um, and can you can you uh, have the, the faith, uh, the kindness um, to, to sort of um, just put it out there and... and 
and let it be. Um, we have this little Wednesday uh, noontime, um, noonday prayer and women's Bible study here at church. And yesterday was the story of the, th- you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire with King Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, worship this God or I'll put you in the fire. And like, they're basically saying, well, okay. And I guess if our God is real, he'll save us, but we're not worshiping your God. You know, they're not confrontational. There's like, we're not doing that. And, uh, right. and God, God shows up. And so I think... Uh, you know, what does Peter say? Uh, be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have, but do it with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. RJ, you're so Baptist. I just love all this um, Well, you know, we got so many us. Episcopalians, you know, I just need... And when you throw it out, I'm just like, wait, that's... <laughs> I say the same thing. It's like, I can't... One page! Relief. That's, I mean, like, I'm so relieved that that's in there. The, um... That I do quote in uh, that same piece uh, a story about John Wimber, the guy who started the Vineyard um, yes. movement, mm. and uh, you know he was he 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 did come across a man who had one of the signs on him, you know, and it, but it wasn't like repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. It's it was a sign that said, "I am a fool for Christ. Who's who's oh. whose fool are you?" And um, uh. that it doesn't mean that you can't put the message out there. That's not what this is saying or that being gracious tonally means being like somehow super soft or, or, or I don't know, like a a marshmallowy. It it just means that you actually, it's coming from a place of, of, of caring about other people as they are rather, rather than hating other people (laughs) because you hate yourself or, or that sort of vindictiveness that does come across. And I think that that disposition thing is just, um, it's, it's the reason why I think some people's preaching really does hit home, even though you go back, it's like, I don't really remember what they said, but I just Mm -hmm. remember, I felt like they believed it and I felt like it was some message about God. And I feel a little bit closer. And again, again, it doesn't mean that the content is... If one of the things I say in there is I think that it's a measure of how important grace is. That it, mm-hmm. it's also... we the, the spirit of it is, is important in the delivery. The medium matched the message. But I know... I tried at the end of the article to say that, like, you know, it, this doesn't mean that God can't work through someone who is, is, is just... Sometimes we, we have someone who's totally doesn't mean well and god uses that too so like oh yeah like uh, i hope that's true for me because some some like every interaction anyone ever has with me they're like whoa she does not mean well but somehow god used her <laughs> well sometimes you get up there in the pulpit and you're like i just i'm trying to get this over with i really don't yeah. care how it's received yeah. i'm like yeah i i i'm, I'm like I'm, I'm exhausted and i just want to yeah. i've got the rona I want to eat some pizza. Right. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Any closing thoughts for us as we hit, you know, because that's what we're about to hit, you know, Holy Week, as we said, and Good Friday is the sense that, um, you know, uh, no one uh, ultimately uh, came to the table in the end and that the world really did turn its back on the one who was uh, so incredibly gracious uh, towards sinners. I'll, I'll, say, what, I'll say one thing. Um, I've been, you know, as we've gone virtual, all of our bulletins are online, and I always like to have a little cover image, you know, that fits the week. And I've gotten really, I've got to like read up more about him, but there's this French, um, late 19th century French painter named uh, James Tissot, who did like 400 paintings of the life of Jesus. That, that are, is amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, his, and he has yeah. about six different ones of the crucifixion. 
But the one I'm putting on the Good Friday bulletin, which I've never seen anything like, and it really takes your breath away, it's a painting from the perspective of Jesus looking down oh on, and, and, and Mary is there, and John is there, and the high priests are there, and the centurion is there, and the only part of Jesus you see are his um, bloody nailed feet right at the bottom. And it's it's oh. a little, it's uncomfortable because you don't want to put yourself in Jesus's place, but it's also so affecting because it's like, it, it shows you the people that are putting him to death, or at the least not doing anything about it, and communicates that these are the people he's dying for. He's dying for the people who are looking at him and not doing anything wow. about it. And so if you have a chance to look, um, and the, all these are at the Brooklyn Museum. Yeah, I've got I'll a, put a link in the show notes. I've, I've got prints of all these, RJ. I gotta do you? Sh- do you have I, the I book? Do you have that amazing you. book? No, I have the original published New Testament. No, 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 he, yeah, like the one that's like $1,000. Yeah, I, yeah I really it. want my, that. My dad gave it to me as like a... he, he I'm was, dying for Someone it. gave it to him as a present. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I want a copy of that. So that you, you can... Well, I'm going through my parents' books. I'll let you know. Please, if that and shows I'll, I'll up take it. Dollar um, cotton, but but it's southern. It's worth. Yeah. <laughs> he's he's worth a look, and that painting is worth. It, it's called the view from the cross. The view from the cross. Oh. Yeah. I mean, that's somebody's sermon, RJ. So that's be a my gift. sermon. <laughs> so does I think. Good. Who knows? I'll tell you, you Friday. Spoiler. Well, I hope you have all have a great triduum. And uh, mainly just happy Easter so to, to all of our listeners. I'm always like, how do you say yeah, that? I was like, okay. tridium? Tr- 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 I don't know. Triduum? Okay. <laughs> don't never say that Tricycle. again, RJ. I the, won't. The... Okay. <laughs> no, but ha- happy right. Easter to you, the two of you. Too soon. And to our yeah. listeners. We, we, we can't wait to see you. Or to, we can't wait to yeah. be back again soon. Absolutely. I hope you have a really yeah. a blessed time. Seriously. Love right. you guys. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.embird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. Until next time. Praise the Lord. Praise